don't know, Vance has been without a heat pump. <laughs> All of you have given up something for Lynn. <laughs> It wasn't my choice, but I've given up heat for them. It's been eight days now since the furnace man said, you need a new heat pump. I left a fire burning on my hearth with a prayer that the log doesn't roll out into the floor so that there'll be some heat when I get home. I did give up something for Lynn. I gave up television. And my wife said, no, you're not. <laughs> that means if you give it up, I have to give it up, too. We watched the Today Show at breakfast and the evening news at dinner. So I revised my giving up for Lent to something that didn't affect her. Most of us, well, I wouldn't say that, really thinking of the ages of which most of you are. Let's put it this way. When I was a boy in church, many times, especially during revival meetings, there would be one session where someone would skillfully tell a story out of the Bible by the use of what was called flannel graph. Do any of you remember flannel graphs? Yeah. A board was set before the group, pieces of flat colored flannel, were placed upon the board as the speaker unfolded the story. And when it was finished, there was a picture on the board that reflected what the story was that had been told. It has often been said, and we can readily affirm, that a picture is worth a thousand words. And Jesus is the master picture painter painting not with pigments, but painting with words. He told many truths that is difficult for us even yet to comprehend. We wrestle over them. But the things that really matter, he made a point of portraying it with an image. He created a picture that would make indelible in our minds what it was that he wanted to say. And the most important of these are his parables. As Jesus explained different aspects of the kingdom, he put it in terms of a story, and the story unfolded so that we could see the characters portrayed, the situations. We may forget the words with which he spoke, but we'll never forget the images that he created. How would one begin to tell others about what it means to be a neighbor? When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor, he portrayed a man lying beside the road that had been beaten to the point of death. He told of a Samaritan who walked by and saw him lying there. He told about a rabbi who walked by and left him lying there. One by one, he introduced characters into the story. And when the Samaritan, who was hated among all the Jews, was the hero of the story, there was an indelible impression immediately in the minds of the hearers. Today, when we talk about who is my neighbor, we immediately think of the good Samaritan. 
Jesus was masterful in taking profound truths, weaving them into pictures with words so that we can see the picture, translate that picture into our minds, and know what it is that he's wanting us to learn. He used metaphors for that. We have talked about them over the past few weeks. I am bread, I am water, I am light, etc. We come now to the final session in this quarter's unit. And Jesus is with his disciples. His death is imminent. He's leaving with them last thoughts and last words. Once again, he conjures an image that is readily apparent to them through the imagery, what it is that Jesus is wanting them to know. And we are privy to that same kind of understanding ourselves. Because Jesus said, I am the true vine, you are the branches, and my Father is the pruner of the vine. He has established three images there, all of which play together in the role of what we are to do in our relationship with God. Now, when you read the lesson, you may have looked over the word true and just said, I am the vine. Oftentimes we say Jesus is the vine, but he said, I am the true vine. And there's a difference. His implication is, I am the true vine, that there are many false vines. Now, Vineyards were readily seen throughout all of Palestine. Wine was a staple in the society in Jesus' day because of the nature and the scarcity of water. And good vineyards were of a necessity to the people. When Jesus performed his first miracle, it was to create a wine that was better than the harvest out of the fields. And the people declared that this is much better than the other. Good wine was very important in the lives of the Hebrew people. And the vine as an image was so much a part of the Hebrew culture that there were images of the vine in the temple. And during the time of the Maccabees, when there was a brief time of independence, they stamped a vine upon the coin, the vine representative of the Hebrew nation. But Jesus was wanting to make it very strong the fact that simply the vine being present does not mean that we are in relationship with God in the way that we ought to be because there are false vines as well. I know all about false vines. I had four acres of land on Mount Harrison overlooking Gatlinburg since then, Shelley Village has taken the entire mountain and the ski resort sits at the top. But the property that I owned was sold before Shelley Village came in. And so I had, whereas you have 100-foot lots on which Shelley's are built, I had four acres up on the mountain. And it was a wild mountain. It had not been cultivated. The owners from whom I had bought the property had leveled the land on which they were to build. When they decided not to build, then it was ready for me to build on. But the rest of the land was nothing but brambles and vines and weeds and trees that need to be uprooted. That's when I gave up golf. Jim, where are you? I played golf every week until I found my four acres on the mountain. And instead of going to the golf course, I went up and cleared the land. 
while grapes had taken over the land, you could cut them off at the bottom, but then you had to pull and weave them out of the trees and over the land as they would spread from place to place. Of complete, they were completely worthless, no value at all in them. You couldn't even chop them up for firewood. And what grapes might appear on the leaves were just small nodules that had no worth at all. It was a pest. I had to get rid of those wild vines. And Jesus said, we are, you as my disciples, are constantly faced with false vines. They have all the appearance of a true vine, but do not produce fruit. Leaves are apparent, deceptive, but there's no fruit. He said, I am the true vine. Now, <clears throat> there are many things that go into good fruit off of true vines. In 1980, Dr. Charles Lehman and I took a group of friends to the Alpine countries to attend the Oberon Miguel Passion Play. While there, we took a tour down the Rhine River. Many of you have been on a boat going down the Rhine, and the captain points out, now this great vineyard here will produce such and such a vine, uh, wine, and when you sit at dinner, be sure that you ask for this particular type of wine that is grown here. And as we went, different wines were pointed out. Ben, you ought to be up here talking about wines. You know all about it. <laughs> there has to be the proper soil. There has to be the proper nutrients. There has to be the proper care before the good wine comes out of it. We spent one evening in Vienna in a wine house, and the wine steward came to our table and explained all the different wines that were there and where they came from and the delicacies that was to be found in each one as we made our choices. Now, Ben, you're not going to like me for saying this. I don't like wine. I don't like wine. Now... <laughs> I have no objection to your drinking it and enjoying it. And one of our favorite programs was Frasier. And one of the big things about Frasier and Niles is that they could take the cork of a, of a bottle of wine and tell you everything about it. it. It is an art. I just don't have a taste for it. I have no moral compunction about it, believe me. I, I appreciate your sitting and enjoying it with your dinner. I just don't like the taste of it. I'm sorry, Ben. I just don't like wine. A lot of people don't like Coca-Cola. But it is very important to the Hebrew people in the cultivation of their wines. It was of great value to them. But it just didn't happen simply because you had a vineyard. There had to be a nurturing. There had to be a careful pruning of the vines, adding of minerals and all to get the quality of the vine that they were seeking in the beginning. Jesus said, life is like that. He said, I am the vine. I hold all the resources by which the fruit can be born. 
And you are the fruit of the vine. It is your lives that produce the fruit. And you must be receptive to that which will allow that fruit to be produced. And if you do not produce the fruit, then you have no value and you'll be pruned away. Just as the branches on the vine that do not produce fruit in the vineyard are pruned in order that the good fruit might be produced. The good fruit is cultivated. It isn't left to nature, but nodules are pulled away. Bacteria or viruses that might attack the plant are treated so that the fruit will be good and the way that God meant for it to be in the use of the vine in the vineyard. It doesn't just happen. It needs to be cultivated. And that is the point that Jesus was making with his disciples. I am the vine. I am the source of all that will produce good fruit. You are the ones who will produce fruit from the vine. But the Father is the vine dresser who will see that only the good fruit is kept on the vine and all the other is cut away and thrown away because it's useless. This lesson fits in very well with Michael Lester's great sermon this morning. He talked about the fig tree that didn't produce fruit. It's very important in studying the New Testament to see how often reference is made to the fact that if you do not produce fruit, then you're worthless and God cannot use you in the way in which he has called you to be used. So God is the one who nurtures the vine by giving to it all that is necessary for good fruit to be provided. But we are the ones who produce the fruit by the commitment of our lives to the principles that Jesus taught. We are the ones that produce the fruit or ones that do not produce fruit, and a distinction is made by the wine dresser. Jesus said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. We are in this together. And you are the beneficiaries of all that we have brought in order to make your life fruitful and worthwhile. We are the ones who produce good fruit when we are committed to the discipline that Christ calls us to. We cannot just be a good follower of Christ simply by accepting the fact that he has offered it to us and we have accepted it. It is a matter of discipline from that moment on. Too often we talk about the free grace by which God accepts our lives and we stop there without looking at the discipline that comes from that. At the time of God's grace which transforms our lives is the beginning of a changed life that prospers through discipline. And we know the disciplines that we are to follow if our lives are to be fruitful. We are to feed the hungry, clothe the naked. We are to visit the sick. Jesus articulated these things specifically that reflected the lives of people who are carrying out his mandates to be my disciples. But we cannot do it without the empowerment of God through a healthy vine. We can't do it ourselves.
We can't love the way that we are supposed to love one another unless it is God's impetus in our lives that makes us love, that allows us to love. It's difficult to love unlovely people unless you have God's love in your life. All of the good things that we do and are called upon to do are contingent upon our good relationship with Christ to be empowered in these things. Paul talked about the fruits of the Spirit. Those qualities that come into our lives when we are faithful to Christ and do His calling. He doesn't leave us powerless. He told His disciples last week that you will do greater things than I have done when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And it is through the Spirit in our lives that we are allowed to see these things and to do these things that produce good fruit. Paul says the first of these is love. If you distill the entire New Testament into one word, it will come out love because love is at the heart of everything that the, Christ, that the Christian faith stands for. Without love, we have nothing. Paul says that that is a gift from God, the ability to love. He said a gift from God through the Spirit is joy. Christians are joyful. Mike uh, Lester this morning in his sermon talked about the negatives of people's lives and how we need to avoid the negatives and build upon the positives. Joy isn't automatic. Just as many people wear frowns when they should be wearing smiles, I left the building here two or three years ago after working out in the uh, CLC. When Carlene was on the faculty at Milligan, we would come over every day and I would walk five miles. Since she left Milligan and I don't come over here, I do good to get around the block. <laughs> but I was leaving the building one day and there was someone sitting in an old ramshackle car, I think perhaps someone who maybe lived at John Sevier Center and well, wasn't able to have a better car than that. He wasn't dressed as though he were on a mission of any kind. He was just sitting there whiling the time. As I passed by, he called to me, and I turned, and he said, I want you to give me something. I need it. And I reached into my billfold because I didn't know how, what he would use it for, but I didn't want to walk by and, and leave him without something when he had asked for it. He said, put your billfold back. I don't want your money. I need a smile. Give me a smile. That said, reams the need for a smile. We need joy in our lives. We need to be upbeat. We need to be positive. And we always wear a smile when we have Christ in our hearts because we have no need to be crestfallen. Let not your hearts be troubled. There's no need for troubled hearts when we have attachment to a healthy vine, to the good vine. Peace. Paul said that peace is one of the gifts of the Spirit to those of us who are attached to the vine. How badly we want peace in the world. What can we do? There's so many things that I would like to do in order to bring peace in the world. I despair when I read about the troubled spots of the world and the direction in which the world is heading in every way. But I can discover peace 
in my community. I can discover peace in my home, and I can discover peace in my heart. Peace is an individual achievement that all of us can have when our relationship is right with Christ. Goodness is one of the gifts that Paul defines. We are able to live good lives because that's what we want. Our desire turns us toward good things. We have a self-humility declaring that we are helpless without God. So by that, we can latch on to the gifts that God has and the opportunities that we have to grow in his love and grace. There are nine such gifts that Paul identifies that we who are the followers of Christ can experience when we remain faithful to him. And these are the empowerment forces that allows us to do good things. Jesus said to his disciples that you will do greater things than I. As much as you admire the things I have done, you will do even greater things than I. And this brings us to the point in our lesson that is rather problematical. And we touched upon it last week when we said, anything that you ask in my name, I will give it to you. And I passed over it last week by saying we all know that that can't be taken literally because we may ask for contradictory things and God can't give this one without contradicting the other. If Jim wants to play golf, and then our garden is dry. He can pray for a dry day, and I can pray for rain. <laughs> and God's going to answer Jim's prayer, not mine. <laughs> but the fact is, common sense tells us that we can't ask anything, and God's going to give it just because we ask for it. But let me put it in this perspective. Jesus was talking to his disciples. He was getting ready to leave them. They were going to carry the burden of the church from that time on. You are my disciples. Everything that Jesus promised was prefaced with the word if. If you keep my commandments, if you are faithful to my teachings, everything is contingent. And the early disciples were faithful once the Holy Spirit came into their lives. How do you start a church in a back country that is overwhelmed by more powerful empires all around them? A group of people who are enslaved to another country who have little resources with which to work? Only 12. How do you leave 12 people to establish in a world that is alien to them the teachings of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, and the Christian faith? I've gotten re-interested in early American history, and I bought the DVD from the History Channel on the making, uh, excuse me, the uh, Founding Fathers. And one of the historians in relating says, it's a miracle that America ever came to being. He doubted that any of the founding fathers thought it would really materialize because of the disadvantages, the difficulties to overcome. And he said, it's almost a miracle that we have the nation that we have. Nobody thought it would ever materialize. And we've got a man down here can refute that if that's not true. But at least that was what was said on this particular 
uh, DVD, which is to say that that's nothing compared with the 12 disciples with an entire world. They have to have powers greater than themselves. They have to have something with which to work that will set them apart from the rest of the world. And Jesus said to them, greater things than I have done, you will do when my spirit comes upon you. Ask anything and I will give it to you. Now the commentator on our lesson said, he explained it this way by saying, if you're a true disciple, you won't ask for things that God doesn't want you to have. Uh, I'm not going to stop there. That may be true. But I'm going one step further to say, when Jesus gave this promise, he gave it to 12 men who were standing there who were to take over his work. Anything you ask, knowing that you will ask only for those things you need, I'll give them to you. And what happened when they went out into the world? They performed miracles everywhere. Peter healed the sick. He came into the temple and the man lying there lame, begging for alms. And he said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I'll give to you. Stand up and walk. I told you some time ago about the two priests that were going into St. Peter's Basilica. And there was a beggar sitting on the steps. And one priest said to the other, well, it's one thing is certain, we can't say silver and gold have I none with the great wealth of the church. And the other priest said, yes, and neither can we say stand up and walk. In the beginning, miracles happened all the while. Prison doors fell away. Miracles happened through these disciples because they needed to manifest the power of God in such a dramatic way that the Christian faith would take hold and grow. Today, we are of such stature and size, we don't need miracles to prove. We need the efforts on the part of dedicated disciples to bring about the miracles that need to be brought about. And so the promise made here, and I offer this to you as a possibility, not as a fact, that this promise, anything you ask I will give, was limited to these 12, and they found that to be true in their lives, and the church was able to grow because of it. In other places, we are told that God will give to us as we ask, but not unconditionally anything you ask I will give, but ask in my name, and if it is according to the will of God, he is willing to grant. The main thing to be understood from today's lesson is that Jesus said, I am the true vine. There are many false vines in the world, and we are aware of those false vines, trying to wean away the loyalty of people to false doctrines, sect groups that make promises that are inconsistent with the teachings of Christ. There are many false vines in the world. I am the only true vine. My father is the one who cultivates, and you are cultivated by him, but you must produce fruit. If you do not produce fruit, then you are pruned away, and you are no longer the recipient of God's blessings as one of his disciples. Well, this winds up our series on Jesus' teachings of who he is and how he relates to our lives. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And I am the true vine. Any comments?
comments or questions on today's or any of our previous studies? Yes. A servant could produce good fruit too, but he doesn't understand the whole picture. But he made a distinction, I think. He, he made that distinction here, and he made it in the Good Shepherd. A hireling will run when the uh, sheep are threatened. I'll lay down my life for my sheep. And the same thing here that uh, the vine dresser will leave it undone if he is just a, a worker who has a job to do. But as Jesus being the true vine will nurture it, as the good shepherd would lead out his life. Yes? Yes? Southern Baptist Convention said, God doesn't hear the prayers of Jews. And his own son was a Jew. But uh, that was said in jest. I shouldn't have interjected because it is a serious subject. Uh, there are those who believe that you get to God through the person of Jesus Christ and him only. And if you do not come through Christ, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. You're left out altogether. Now, here's the fact. The fact is God gave us Jesus Christ. He gave Christ to pay for our sins, how mystically that can be expressed or understood. We don't understand how it happened. But we do know by the Bible telling us so that he died for our sins. He made us justified before God as though we had never sinned. The key is justification. Justification comes from the death of Christ and the grace that follows. Grace is the forgiveness of God and the acceptance of God, which says it's as though you never sinned. You're not paying for your sins. You can't pay for your sins. But it's as if you never sinned. Come into my kingdom through the grace of Jesus Christ. He gave his only son. He reached out to the entire world. Not all the world has responded to Christ, but not all the world even knows about Christ. What are you going to do about them? And what are you going to do about the people who lived before Christ? Now, if I were to say, God, what about them? He said, you don't need to know that. 
Don't, don't fuddle up your mind with things that don't matter. All you need to know is that you can take Jesus and you can come. Let that be someone with whom I can communicate who doesn't have Christ. And I firmly believe that God loves each individually not because of a discipline that he has demanded they follow, the steps they follow. If in their hearts they really want to be restored to God and he wants them restored, I'll say that he'll, I won't say find a way, I'll say that he has a relationship with them that doesn't affect us at all. So why should we know what that is? Jesus said, I have many sheep that are not of this fold. So, you know, we take what we know and we try to make it the totality. It's just like you take a beginning course in college. You take uh, beginnings of American history for a minute back there. When you graduate that, when you leave that first year of history, you're not going to say, I know it, I know it all now. I don't have to study anymore. All you do is just have what's basic at that moment in your life. And all we need is what's basic in our lives. And that's Jesus. If we've got him, if he gives us what we need, what we want, then why should we bother going out here and testing and making judgments on others? Now, we do have a responsibility as Christians to say to those who have not accepted Christ, this is the way. Come on, I'll lead you right there. This is the doorway. I'll show you the door, and I'll show you the one who's keeping the door. And that is a certainty that we can share. But we have no right to stand at the door and say, you can't come in because you haven't met the requirements. It's not on us to judge. That's strictly the purview of, of God.